Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. And when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I need to get a topographic view of my life and see how I fit into the plan of salvation and the ministry of reconciliation, otherwise I will simply meander. Ephesians speaks about just such a topographic view, even a view from the third heaven. Here we sit and are represented before the Father in Christ. Through his eyes we can see from this heavenly perch. From this perspective, everything looks different. If you take an airplane trip, taking off in the midst of dark, stormy clouds, it can be somewhat intimidating. But once you get up above the clouds and take a topographic look down, those dark, stormy clouds look like lovely, soft, even comforting cotton balls. Think of the stormy clouds as the dark and intimidating circumstances you may and will face in your life. Now take a trip above those ominous clouds into heavenly places and look again. If you are a child of God, if you have been born again and are striving to enter in, you can be sure of three powerful things. One, your steps, even your circumstances, are ordered by the Lord. Psalms thirty-seven twenty-three: the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Number two, no matter how bad the clouds look, even the darkest and the baddest become the brightest, whitest cotton balls when they have been choreographed by God to work together for your good. Even death itself is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four through 57. Romans eight twenty eight reads, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The baddest becomes the best. Number three, you are on a journey, even the path of life, traveling Route 7, North Obedience, and every day you you draw closer to Jesus Christ, the bright and morning star, where when we see him, we shall be like him and live forevermore. Proverbs 4.18, But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. What does this mean to the born again? It means today is the best day of my life and tomorrow will be better. This is a very real place and all it takes to access it is the activation of the born-again's little baby faith. Have you been born again? Would you like a topographic view where all your dark, fearful clouds are turned into white, comfortable cotton balls? Will today be the day all of your sin and shame are washed away and all of Satan's bondage is broken? Choose Jesus Christ and be free and alive now and forever. Follow me in this simple prompt. Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 and 36, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. 
and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. God said, Second Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. God said, Matthew 24, verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Man said, These foolish doomsday prophets make me laugh. There is no end to this world, and certainly no judgment day. Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature article 967 that will once again certify the supernatural inerrancy of God's Holy Bible. These glorious features are archived here in text and streaming audio for your edification and as information with which to win the lost sons and daughters of Adam. Every Thursday eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for coming. May God's face shine upon you with light and truth. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ and literally dwells in him. Things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, from molecules to men, because this pleases the Father. Colossians 1 verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Everything lives and exists in Christ Jesus. He is the singularity, for this pleases the Father. Several foundational paragraphs from this short series follow. Sola Scriptura, Scriptures Alone Saints, are often criticized with statements such as, You foolish Christians offer up Jesus Christ as the solution for everything. To this the word walker will respond, Yes, it is true. The fullness of all things lives, dwells inside Jesus Christ. At God said, man said, we call this the supreme singularity, and for the skeptics, this is the proof of all proofs. Nothing is happenstance in the Word of God. Everything has its place, everything has its purpose, and everything by necessity revolves around Jesus Christ. Every deed and every thought revolve around Jesus Christ. They are either pro-Christ or anti-Christ. A thought or deed that is good, wholesome, and true is pro-Christ. Those that are not are anti-Christ. He is the solution to every problem because every problem is the product of casting off Christ. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. Even today and yesterday are dated in his name. B.C. for before Christ and the year of this writing, 2019 A.D., 2019 Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ is the singularity. The singularity of Christ is so completely all-encompassing, it staggers the mind and contemplate. What does Colossians 1, verse 19 mean? For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. All fullness dwells, all of creation, visible and invisible, dwells or lives inside Jesus Christ, for this pleases the Father. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and all that is in between. Christ Jesus is the singularity. He is God's creator of the earth and its universe and all its life forms. He is God's Savior, 
for all who will call upon his name and inherit the promise of eternal life. He is the champion of Armageddon, where this wicked world as we know it ends, and Satan is bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. His cross will be the judge of all mankind and will dictate their eternity. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. Jesus Christ is the singularity because this pleases the Father. If Jesus Christ is the singularity, if he is the center of the universe, if everything is of him and dwells in him, and that means everything, then we should see evidence everywhere, and we do. If you have not yet visited the first three features of this series, please stop now and either read or listen to the God Said, Man Said features listed. In feature one, we discovered Jesus Christ, God's singularity. Jesus Christ is the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John chapter 1, verse 9. Microbiologists discovered when the egg and sperm come together, a flash of light shoots forth, marking and energizing the beginning of life. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, and every letter and word formed in between. His words, God's words, have created us as evidenced by our DNA. DNA houses a four-letter alphabet that dictates all of life's building instructions. It is structured in words, sentences, paragraphs, chapters, and volumes. We are made out of words, God's words. Don't forget Jesus, whose name is called the Word of God, Revelation 19.13. When sin entered into the Garden of Eden, the law of sin and death began to reign. God's plan to reconcile the lost souls of men unto himself was set in motion. Not only was Jesus Christ God's creator of the universe, but this same Christ became God's Savior and deliverer for the lost and bound sons and daughters of Adam. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and John 3.16 After Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked and sewed together fig leaves to make aprons, but that covering was insufficient. To cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, which represents the shameful results of sin, God made them clothes out of animal skins that would cover their nakedness. Note that a blood sacrifice was required to cover their sin. This blood sacrifice was not only the first offering for sin, but also a shadow of the sacrifice Jesus Christ would make on Calvary's tree, which was to come. Jesus Christ is the singularity. Our daily conversations are laced with Jesus Christ. Just one example in this brief review follows. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the word bless has an etymological meaning of to mark or affect in some way with blood or sacrifice, to consecrate. The original meaning, to make sacred or holy with blood, end of quote. When one says, God bless you, he or she is calling on the blood covering of Jesus Christ to be your portion. In feature 2, you read Hebrews 10, 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The volume of the book revolves around Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24 teaches us that the Old Testament law was a schoolmaster, bringing us unto Christ, who is the fulfillment of all things. Colossians 2.17 tells us God, Old Testament customs and observances were but a shadow of the Christ to come. Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets in Matthew 5.17 and says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
Everything in scriptures and life revolves around Jesus Christ, every jot and every tittle. In feature two, you read how the world, past, present, and future, turns on an event that took place 4,000 years ago between God, Abraham, and Isaac. In Genesis chapter 22, you can read the account. Abraham went to sacrifice his only begotten son Isaac atop Mount Moriah, which today is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. God commanded Abraham to do this, but had no intention for Abraham to follow through. Abraham was being tested. In the shadow example, Abraham represents God and Isaac represents Jesus. Isaac and Jesus, both being only begotten sons. The ram is a substitute for Isaac, and Christ is the substitute for us, forgiving and delivering us from our sins, even our propitiation. 1 John 2, verse 2. Abraham saw a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham's only begotten son Isaac was spared because God had supplied the sacrifice, and the sacrifice in the fulfillment of the shadow was Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We highlighted ram's horns and how prevalently they are represented in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the horns are ever-present at Calvary. The ram couldn't escape from Abraham because he was caught by his horns in the thicket. If Jesus Christ was to fulfill the will of God, he would not be able to escape Calvary. In agony, Jesus prays to his Father in Mark chapter 14, verses 34 through 36, and saith unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Jesus prayed this prayer three times and so intently that he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Luke twenty-two forty-four. It was Jesus' decision to drink of his prophetic cup that the Father had given him. He could have walked away from the horrors of the cross. In the garden in Matthew twenty-six, fifty-three and 54, Jesus said, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Jesus was caught in the thicket. Jesus Christ was bound to the horns, the ram's horns, of the altar. He was the sacrifice that broke Satan's stranglehold upon all who would and will believe upon his name. Jesus was caught in the thicket, and he willingly chose the Father. He willingly chose us. A brother in Christ, after hearing the teaching of the ram caught in the thicket by his horns, commented that the crown of thorns on Jesus' head represented the struggle in the thickets. The crown of thorns was not just happenstance. Abraham built an altar of rock upon the foundation rock of Mount Moriah, and this is where Jesus Christ was judged, condemned, and then crucified on Calvary. This is where King David's son, King Solomon, built the Hebrew temple in Jerusalem, Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. 
Jewish sages claim that Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, contains the foundation stone of the world and its universe, which is also the very stone upon which Abraham lay Isaac upon the sacrifice. It is central to the Holy of Holies in the Temple. Jewish writings declare it as the place of the binding of Isaac by Abraham. King David purchased this land for the building of the first Jewish temple. As a result of Israel's sin, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and later rebuilt. The second temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Roman general Titus. The third temple is soon to be rebuilt, and the Isaac stone will drive the very battle of Armageddon. This rock represents the seed of Abraham, and that seed is Christ. The end of the world happens at Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is the singularity, the rock of salvation. In 1940, the idea of an Israel arising from the ash bin of history and becoming a nation again after being missing by name from the globe's geography for over 2,000 years would seem as a pipe dream to most. But one day, May 14, 1948, with the stroke of a pen, Israel once again rejoined the League of Nations in one day. Isaiah prophesies in chapter 66, verses 8 through 10, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her. All ye that love her, rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. In 1940, the idea that Israel would once again find its place on the world map seemed fantastical. But today, it is one of the world's strongest economies and mightiest military forces. The highly prophesied and anticipated third Jewish temple seems just as fantastical to the skeptics, but rest assured, saints, it resides just over the horizon. The rebuilding of the third temple of God on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is pivotal to doomsday. The focus on this small part of the earth's geography is intense. A Time magazine reporter is quoted as saying, Jerusalem's Temple Mount is potentially the most volatile 35 acres on earth, end of quote. It's certainly true. For God's prophecies of a coming Armageddon to be fulfilled, we need a third Jewish temple. We not only need a third temple on Mount Moriah to fulfill biblical prophecies, we also need priests who can establish their pedigree to preside. The tribe of Levi, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, was designated by God to conduct all temple duties. Down through history, Israel, through defeat in battle, has been dispersed to the four corners of the earth. In 70 A.D., the second temple was utterly destroyed. The assumed destruction of genealogical records and over two uh, millennia of dispersion have made Jewish tribe identification nearly impossible but not as much so for the Kohens and the Levites. In the Jewish effort to preserve the identity of the Levite tribe, it was forbidden by Jewish law for a Kohen or a Levi to alter his name. The name Kohen is a Jewish surname derived from Kohen, meaning a Jewish priest. 
Cohens are direct descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was also of the tribe of Levi. Aaron and his sons performed all priestly duties. The entire tribe was set aside to perform the many tasks in connection with the temple and to support the needs of the priest. Years back, Time magazine reported the following. Two Talmudic schools located near the western Wailing Wall are teaching nearly 200 students the elaborate details of temple service, end of quote. The ability to detect a Levitical priest has now risen to the level of DNA science. Variations in the Y chromosome unique to the sons of Aaron can now be ascertained through DNA testing, which establishes with certainty a true Levite priest, end of quotes. The third temple is not a pipe dream. Utensils, pots and pans for temple use have been and are being made. The high priest's robes have been made, as well as orders being taken for the white robes of the supporting Levites. The red heifer now exists. Archaeologists have unearthed the temple's anointing oil. The 71-member Sanhedrin, absent from the world stage for 1,600 years, is now reassembled. The Sanhedrin rules in matters of temple law. The seven-candlestick golden menorah has been made. The headline of the March 16, 2015 feature by Prophecy Newswatch reads, Major Prophetic Announcement, Holy Altar Constructed for Third Jewish Temple. Excerpts follow. End Times Prophecy Watchers are marveling over a news report out of Jerusalem this week that the altar of the Lord has been reconstructed by the Temple Institute. The Institute, based in the old city of Jerusalem, announced it has finished building an altar that is essentially ready for use in sacrificial services. The altar is the most ambitious project to date toward the goal of rebuilding the Jewish temple. The massive outdoor altar, which took several years to build, can be operational at little more than a moment's notice, reported the Israeli magazine Matzav Aruch. The altar is the last major component needed for the long-obstructed sacrifices to resume in a future Jewish temple. Ultra-Orthodox Jews pray daily for its reconstruction atop the holy hill known as Mount Moriah or the Temple Mount. Jonathan Kahn, author of The Harbinger and the Mystery of the Shemitah, also sees the announcement as significant. We know that end-time prophecy cannot be fulfilled without rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, Khan, a Messianic Jewish rabbi in New Jersey, told WND. The abomination desolation prophesied in Daniel and the Gospels must take place within the temple precincts. So, too, the Apostle Paul speaks of the man of sin or the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God. What many people don't realize is that along with the Holy of Holies, the altar of the temple is the most central and critical part of the temple. Khan said, it is the altar that is the center of the abomination causing desolation, end of quote. Jesus Christ is the singularity, and he will return to the earth, landing on the Mount of Olives, and will make a quick and devastating end to the battle raging in Jerusalem. The third temple, soon to be built, will be the ultimate instigator of this earth's ending war, and most specifically the rock where Abraham prepared to sacrifice his only son Isaac, which was the shadow of a loving God and his loving and only begotten son Jesus Christ at Calvary. Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the end of this world's governments in Daniel 244 through 44-45. The mountain in the dream is Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, 
and the stone cut out of the mountain represents Jesus Christ the righteous. The verses read, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. This stone cut out of the mountain without hands that strikes and destroys the world's wicked nations and then fills the whole earth is Jesus Christ, the singularity. First Peter 2, 6 through 8. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. The third temple is central to the great taking up of the church. It is central to the world-ending battle of Armageddon. The third temple and its rock are the center of the universe. The third temple and the fulfillment of its shadow is knock, knock, knocking at the door, and it is a knock that must be answered. Jesus Christ is the singularity, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, Colossians 1.19. Everything lives inside Jesus Christ from molecules to men. It's just that simple. End of quotes. There's been a lot of chatter in the Christian ranks and certainly in Israel concerning the third temple and U.S. President Donald J. Trump. In Israeli politics and in the press, the U.S. president is being compared to the Persian king Cyrus the Great, who existed 600 to 530 B.C., who was the world leader who gave the Jewish people the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had destroyed. This Cyrus event, known as the Edict of Cyrus, came as a result of some very rare and supernatural events. This event was prophesied by God's prophet Isaiah nearly 200 years before the Persian king Cyrus was born, even calling him by his name. King Cyrus himself confirms this prophetic miracle in writing on what is called the Cyrus Cylinder, one of the great artifacts of biblical archaeology. This cylinder now resides in the British Museum. Isaiah chapter 44, 24 through 28, then chapter 45, 1 through 4. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their, not, maketh their knowledge foolishness that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up the rivers. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure. 
even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, and make their crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron, and I will give thee the treasures of darkness, and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and for Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Names are often prophetic tools used by God. The following excerpts are from Mark Taylor and Mary Colbert's book, The Trump Prophecies. Even his name is mysteriously meaningful when considering divine appointment, which is not something anyone could have planned since names are given at birth. Donald, which also happens to be my husband's name, is one I'm very familiar with. Well, before I'd had any thoughts about Donald Trump, I had walked past a plaque on our wall at the health center hundreds of times, so I was well aware that the name is derived from the name Donhal, meaning world leader or ruler of the world. Gaelic Domno, world, vow, rule. But what became more interesting was when his whole name was considered together. John is a Hebrew name, meaning God is gracious. Trump is a German surname, meaning trumpet or drum. But it's also an English verb, meaning to excel, surpass, or outdo. And it's an early English variant of triumph. So Donald John Trump, when pieced together, could easily mean world leader under the grace of God, whose leadership will excel, surpass, and outdo in triumph. You can't make this stuff up. End of quote. Will Donald J. Trump be Israel's Cyrus? Has God chosen him for such a time as this? The headline in the March 27, 2019 issue of the Jerusalem Post reads, Trump isn't Cyrus yet. A few excerpts follow. Following President Trump's proclamation recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights on Monday, Prime Minister Netanyahu compared the American leader to Cyrus the Great. During the signing ceremony at the White House, Prime Minister Netanyahu established the historical significance of the Golan decision. In the long sweep of Jewish history, declared the Prime Minister, there have been a handful of proclamations by non-Jewish leaders on behalf of our people and our land. Cyrus the Great, the great Persian king, Lord Balfour, President Henry S. Truman, and President Donald J. Trump. Israel's Haratz.com ran this headline on December 16, 2017. Christians and Jews now compare Trump to Persian King Cyrus. Will he build the third temple? A few paragraphs follow. Political junkies and Middle East analysts have had to bone up on their conservative Christian theology to properly understand why Donald Trump's declaration of Jerusalem as Israel's capital was so important to the evangelicals who lobbied hard for it and have been lauding it all week. Trump was already a hero to a wide swath of evangelicals for his efforts to fight abortion, keep transgender kids out of the wrong bathrooms, and fill the U.S. courts with diehard conservative judges. But the role he's playing in what many believe is the fulfillment of divine prophecy 
has gotten him promoted the king for some of them, an ancient Persian king to be precise. Trump in his generation as Cyrus in his, tweeted Israeli Justice Minister Eilat Sheked. The boulder have gone so far as to suggest that Trump doesn't just merely resemble the Persian king, he's Cyrus reincarnated. Initial comparisons of Trump and Cyrus date back to early 2016, when the tough-talking GOP candidate's popularity among evangelicals initially split evangelical leaders, some of whom hesitated to support a man whose life choices haven't exactly exemplified family values. In a Christian Broadcasting Network interview in April 2016, evangelical leader and author Lance Walnow argued for Christian support for the candidate, contending that Trump has the Cyrus anointing. And so, in a dangerous world, with Trump, I believe we have a Cyrus to navigate through the storm. But it's not only Christians who have embraced the comparison. Ideological right-wing religious Jews have as well. Likud Knesset member Yehuda Glick, Israel's most famous advocate of Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, invoked the comparison at a Trump inauguration uh, interfaith prayer ceremony, saying that if Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, he will be the Latter-day Cyrus. The Christian imagining of a third temple rebuilt by the Jews is the beginning of the end of the Jewish religion, according to this theology. Such Christians see the rebuilding of the temple as the match that sets the world ablaze with the battle of Armageddon. Saved from the battle will be those who accept Jesus, including the Jews, who will see the light and convert to Christianity, end of quotes. President Donald J. Trump is the first U.S. president to recognize Jerusalem as the rightful capital of Israel. He startled world leaders by moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Trump surprised world leaders again by recognizing the annexed Golan Heights as sovereign Israeli ground. President Trump has defunded Palestinian terrorists and stands staunchly against Iran and other countries that desire the destruction of the Hebrew nation. Will he endorse the building of the third Jewish temple? The stage is set for the end of the world. Zechariah 14 says all the nations will gather against Israel at the battle of Armageddon. The third temple will draw the world's ire, its hatred, and satanic frenzy. All the focus will be on one single rock, the rock of Abraham and Isaac, the Old Testament shadow of the New Testament Christ on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end, God's creator of the world and the one who brings it to its end, because it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Jesus Christ is the singularity. God said, Daniel eleven thirty one and 36, and arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself, and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done." God said, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, Let no man deceive you by any means. 
For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. God said, Matthew twenty four fifteen, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Man said, These foolish doomsday prophets make me laugh. There is no end to this world and certainly no judgment day. Now you have the record.